Hello, and welcome to Missing an Audience. In each episode, a different guest from the arts world will talk about how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected their practice, how they see things changing going forwards, and about their memories of being part of or creating for audiences. Our aim with this podcast is to hear from and reach as many different people working or studying in the arts as possible, to connect over what we miss and have lost, what we have to look forward to, and what needs to change. We also hope to spread awareness of charities or arts groups struggling at this time. We need the arts, and we need audiences. Culture is for entertainment, protest, education, therapy, employment, inspiration and connection. It must survive. This episode was recorded before the government's announcement of a £1.57 billion funding package to support the arts industry or the publication of guidance for working safely in the performing arts. While we welcome this news, the fight to save artists, workers and venues continues and we wait to see how this story will unfold over the coming weeks. Our guest today is Matt Wolfe. Matt is London theatre critic for the International New York Times, formerly the International Herald Tribune, and London correspondent for the Broadway.com website. He spent 21 years as London arts and theatre critic for the Associated Press and over 13 years as Variety's UK drama critic. He has been on the judging panel of the Evening Standard Theatre Awards since 2009. He was one of the founding members of the Arts Desk website and has been its theatre editor since its inception in 2009. The author of a book on Sam Mendes's tenure running the Donmar Warehouse He is at work on a new book about performing Stephen Sondheim. Matt is on the faculties of NYU and Syracuse Universities in London and leads a Sunday theatre course every autumn for the V&A Museum. Raised in New York and educated at Yale, where he read English, Matt has lived his entire professional life in London. Hello, I'm Jake Leonard. I'm the creator and host of this podcast and I'm a freelance theatre director. Matt Wolf, thanks for joining us. How are you? Pleasure. How am I? I'm fine. The new normal does really feel like some kind of normal uh, to the extent that my life of old when I would go to the theatre, you know, four or five nights a week, sometimes more than that, um, feels like almost part of another life. But, but that will come back. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to predict really what will happen. You know, they're talking about opening theatres with social distance and guidelines and things, but, but obviously many theatres won't be able to survive like that. And it'll change the experience for the audience as well. Yeah, I don't, um, I don't think too many theatres will actually end up opening that way. I mean, maybe a few will, but it, as everyone has said, it, it just doesn't make any practical sense. It doesn't make much financial sense. I mean, a lot of the smaller theatres in London run on a knife edge, even at capacity. So if you're telling the Finborough, the Arcola, or the Orange Tree, or the Bush, or the Gate, that they have to socially distance, then their already limited capacity is reduced to the point of nonsense. And I think they would remain closed rather than socially distanced. And the larger theatres, which I suppose have the capacity to socially distance, it sort of cuts against the grain of what theatre is. I mean... 
you know, how many times have you been to the theater where there have been acres of empty seats and you feel sort of deflated and you think, oh God, where's everyone? The whole occasion of theater is, is the sense of community and the communal. And, and you want people together. I mean, I love that sense of being in a full house. And, you know, I love walking, but there's a returns queue. And, you know, if I have an extra ticket and somebody in the returns queue gets it, and that's really exciting. And, you know, that sense of occasion. And I, I, I just don't see social distancing working in any major, major way for live performance. And of course, the you know the actors can't social distance on stage because otherwise it'll just everything will have to be a really abstract play. <laughs> well, it will certainly make uh, being a critic uh, a challenge because one of the <laughs> things that you know critics talk about when we assess directing is you know the very basics of blocking, i.e., where are the characters standing in relation to one another? And normally, it's not the kind of thing you even comment on because most mm. plays, the ones professionally, the blocking you just kind of take for granted. But I guess if it looked very awkward and people should be nearer than they are, but they're not because of social distancing, it's going to make it almost impossible <laughs> to assess the rudiments of directing because who knows what the director and the actors might have done were these safeguards not in place. And I'm not that sure that that many actors want to even work that way. Yeah, because I mean, I've been talking to a lot of actors, and they they say that even doing things over Zoom, um, th- you don't have that immediacy, that that connection and tactility with each other that you would do in a normal live performance. It's funny that all of this is happening contemporaneously with the rise of this uh, new person in the theatre known as the intimacy coach. And these are people, it's, it's sort of a result of the Me Too movement. These are people who have been brought in if there are scenes of nudity or even anything sexually suggestive to make sure that the actors in a scene are comfortable. Now, of course, you think, well, the intimacy coaches have been rendered redundant in one fell swoop because social distancing is its own intimacy coach. But obviously it's, it's most important that everyone's safe and well because um, it's just, I mean, this is... They keep saying unprecedented, it's a bit of a cliche now, but it, it is, you know. It's... The thing is, it's true. I mean, you know, when 9-11 happened uh, in, in New York, I mean, obviously terrifying, cataclysmic, but it, it was a totally different kind of cataclysmic because it happened on one day and then the entire city was various literal and metaphoric versions of rubble and ash. But... You know, Broadway bounced back within the week, and it was seen to be, at the time, very important for the New York theater to be seen to be happening and there and available. Mamma Mia, the musical, had its Broadway debut uh, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, and I remember Ben Brantley of the New York Times in New York writing a really lovely review, which people can look at online. There was something about the, the, the sheer giddiness of the show the, the the joy of the show nobody claims it's deep it, it's not Sondheim but it doesn't pretend to be it, it just wants to be giddy and fun and have a good time and that was exactly what New York needed then and in a funny way we well I mean the show I'm sure would have done well in New York anyway but the timing of it on Broadway was especially I think fortuitous because it turned out to be just the show New York wanted this is different because I mean not an original fault but this is the silent, this is the silent enemy. I mean, a thousand of us could go to the theater tonight and it could be completely fine. It could be completely fine. 
or not. But there's no way of knowing. And until there is some way of knowing, I think at least 50% of that audience wouldn't want to take the risk. But that's going to be, you know, it'll be interesting. I'll be very curious to see if theaters, there are lots of little, I mean, there are big things that have to happen, like making theaters comfortable places to be, but also ancillary things like, will theaters make it easier to exchange their tickets? What if you have a ticket for a show next May and the day arrives and you've got a bad throat or you've got a streaming cold? Six months ago, you might have thought, eh, I'll go, I'll bring my tissues, I'll bring my lozenges. I have a feeling next May, you might think, I'm not going to go, and I don't think the theater is going to want me to go. But I've spent 60 quid or $150. That's a lot of money to lose. So I think theaters are going to have to be more flexible about uh, making changes. And I suspect they will be. I think, I think theaters are going to more than meet the audience halfway. They're going to have to. I mean, sure, maybe people will, will wear face masks or gloves, I don't know, or the ushers may just leave the program stacked uh, by the entrance. And if you want one, you pick one up other than them handing one to you. And maybe the interval ice cream won't happen. So we'll have to live without our ice cream. I think that's a small price to pay. I can live without an ice cream in return for a play. Um, interesting, though, about bar sales, because, of course, as any theater will tell you, the bar sales are crucial to the theatrical economy. And a lot of theaters are not going to want to give up whatever money that represents. But, you know, every time I walk by my local Starbucks, I notice hordes of people by the door. They're all ordered by the app. So maybe, you know, you'll be able to order your interval Diet Coke for your daughter by an app beforehand and you get it at the interval. I don't know. Well, interesting, because, I mean, a, a lot of, I mean, obviously pub theatres, the, the bar is really important to, to their revenue. <laughs> um, and that's not just for the theatre itself, it's for the visiting companies. Um, usually there's a box office split partly worked out based on the bar cut. It'll also be interesting to see whether, for some while at least, there's kind of critical leniency, not only because, and I count myself in this, I think we're all just going to be so glad to have theatre back again that, you know, if it isn't the best production of Hamlet that we've ever seen, at least it's a production of Hamlet. The other thing is that the tourist market, but there's a whole other concern, which is the local audience returning to the theatre is one thing, but if I'm in Manchester, am I going to want to come down on the train just to see a show? Am I going to want to risk that? I might not, not to mention outside of the UK. So that's a whole other thing. Is it safe in the theatre? Is it also safe getting to the theatre? So there are a lot of hurdles that have to be crossed. One of the things we get guests to talk about on the podcast is audience experiences. Oh, God. I mean, I've had amazing audience stories over the years. What I value most among an audience and with an audience is the quality of active listening where everyone is in a room sharing the space and there is that kind of collective sense that we are sharing this experience together and the release will come at the end uh, with the curtain call. I think the curtain call is quite important. It isn't just about the actors bowing. It's about a kind of collective catharsis. And when you've got an audience that is actively held by the event, there's nothing like it. I remember in 1992 when Stephen Daldry really made his name with his groundbreaking production of Priestley's Inspector Calls at the National Theatre in Littleton. That was a production I remember it as if it were yesterday. It opened on a Friday night, which is very unusual. Shows don't usually open on a Friday. Um, 
the audience was kind of reluctant to be there because it was a Friday night. They all wanted to be at the pub. And also it was J.B. Priestley's old war horse. What were we possibly going to discover about this play afresh? And then very cleverly, Doldry decided to do the play without an interval. And so when it was over after about an hour and 45 minutes um, of the audience just being gobsmacked again and again and again by the production, there was this kind of incredible palpable silence during the show. And then at the end, this, this genuine roar of response, which I, I still remember to this day, it was, it was electrifying. There's a great tradition in the theater of last performances of musicals, particularly hit musicals, particularly hit productions of Sondheim musicals. I make it a point these days when I can to be at the last performance of whatever show of his is on at the moment. Just recently, the, the gender flip company here in the West End of Rosalie Craig and Patty Lupone, uh, I booked tickets for the last night of that, obviously sold out. There were two uh, fantastic seats right in front of me that as the show began, and you know there was a returns queue around the block, as the show began, those seats were sitting empty. And then I realized that those seats had been earmarked for uh, Mr. Sondheim and his guest, and he had apparently said, upon arrival at the theater, he had apparently said that he didn't want to sit in such great seats because he didn't want, especially at that audience where people would be looking out for him, he didn't want that audience watching him watch the show. He wanted to watch the show from a place where he could watch it and the audience could watch it, and that was the end of it. So those seats went to two people who were standing in the back, standing room, they got promoted. Last performances of, of summer musicals are really something else, just the energy in the room. Those, those are a mixture of active silence during the show and during the songs and punctuated by complete pandemonium. I have had terrible audiences, though. Do you want to hear about those? Oh, yeah, why not? I was actually at the performance in 2015, which has now made history. Well, it made history that night, again, involving Patti LuPone. It was a play at Lincoln Center called Shows for Days by Douglas Cotabin. And um, there was a woman sitting in the front row who had her phone out during the performance. And I mean, I was sitting quite far back, but from what I could tell, you could see the light from her phone and it looked like she was texting during the show or doing something with the phone during the show. And Patty on stage was very aware of this and uh, not pleased about it. And Patty famously being no shrinking violet. At one point, while she was walking off stage, sort of went by this woman and just took the phone out of this woman's hand and walked off stage with the woman's phone, completely in character. And the woman was looking at her, the now empty palm of her hand, and you could see she was going, I think Patty Lupin has just stolen my phone. And then, of course, it was hilarious because Patty was doing it to make a point, but it slightly backfired because then everyone else in the bit who had a phone quickly whipped out their phone and was going, Patty Lupin just took someone's phone during a show <laughs> at the production of Company Here last year. That, that kind of pre-show announcement where they tell you to shut up and put your phone away, was taped by Patty. And I, I thought that that was no accident. And of course, people in the audience who knew Patty's voice and who knew her history heard that and started to laugh. Do you want one more audience story? Go on, go on then. A long time ago, I was at the press night at the Palladium 
of Saturday Night Fever, the stage version of the John Travolta musical. It wasn't particularly good, but it was what it was. And there was a um, you know, reasonably talented Australian performer uh, called Adam Garcia, who was playing the John Travolta part, Tony Monero. And it was a big, big break for him, huge part. Obviously, everyone knew the uh, movie. And so Adam Garcia had to build the footsteps of Travolta on screen. And anyhow, it's the press night and, you know, full of rah-rah, you know, cheerleaders and so on. And at the end, Adam got his own curtain call and he got a, a huge ovation, which was sweet. And you kind of expect that with an opening night of a musical. Anyway, when the ovation was over, the woman next to me, who was a very nice-seeming middle-aged woman, whom I didn't know at all, she said to me, um, and she looked very happy, and she said to me, oh, what did you think? Wasn't that marvelous or something? And I, I, I didn't know who she was, and I've, I've long since learned that if you don't know who somebody is and they, they ask you that kind of thing, it, it's just best not to, not to say much at all. So I just said something like, oh, you know, what an experience or something like that. And then I kind of threw it back at her and I said, um, what, what brings you to this uh, press night? And she, you could tell she couldn't wait to tell someone this. She told me that she was Adam Garcia's mother. <laughs> so, of course, she had just watched 2,300 people at the London Palladium rise to cheer her son and that must have been so fantastic for her mm. and that made me like the show that much more because yeah. it wasn't a particularly memorable show but her warmth and and niceness and her her excitement on behalf of her son was love-based yeah oh that's really sweet <laughs> and as you say it sort of makes the experience for you because otherwise like it's a perfectly fine but just you know it is what it is, musical. And then all of a sudden, you've got this yeah. really nice experience attached to it. Sometimes, though, uh, I've met people and, and stayed in touch with, and it happened twice in the last year, actually. Uh, people I've sat next to at shows. One was at the National. The other time was uh, at the Playhouse Theatre, seeing Fiddle on the Roof, directed by Trevor Nunn, where I was next to or in front of somebody with whom I started chatting we exchanged emails, and uh, in both cases, these are women. Both those women and I have stayed in touch and become friendly. So yeah. that's nice. You know, the sociability of the theater. That's why social distancing seems to me inimical to the theater as well, because sociability is so much part of it. And you yeah. don't want to lose that. I'm, I'm less likely to exchange emails with somebody seated six seats away from me. So the last thing is, is for you to give a little bit of a shout out to a charity or two. That I know you've got a couple that you, you wanted to talk about. One is uh, the Mary Curie Hospice, which is located very near to where I live in Hampstead, North London. It's a place uh, for people to go to die uh, in the last stages of their lives. Uh, it was founded in 1948. Um, I had direct experience of it because a dear friend of mine, lovely actress called Diana Fairfax, um, lived out the last weeks or months or whatever it was of her life there at the beginning of um, 2019. And I was there a lot. 
And I was continually struck by not just the quality of the medical care, but the magnanimity of the human spirit amongst the people who worked there. Nothing was too much for them. They always did as much as they could to keep the tongue light and, and as buoyant as possible. And they were lovely to visitors and to guests. So um, I, I would give a shout out to the Mary Curie Hospice. There are others, uh, I think, around the country. I'm just shouting out to the one near me. The other charity is a similar sort of thing. Um, it's called Denville Hall, and it's in Hillingdon, in Northwest London. And it's basically uh, a, a beautiful home that was set up some decades ago uh, as a retirement home and, and really a, a kind of last home for people in the entertainment industry, the entertainment uh, profession. I've known lots and lots of people who've been there um, and who lived out their final days or years there. Most recently, a, a wonderful American agent in London named Tom Earhart who handled the Tennessee Williams estate. Uh, he worked for the late great Peggy Ramsey, wonderfully kind man, he was there. Uh, the great Beckett actress, Billy Whitelaw, who premiered a lot of Beckett's plays famously uh, and had before that lived near me in North London, but then when she got uh, in the throes of dementia, she had been already moved by that point to Denver Hall. Again, similarly to the Mary Curie Hospice, uh, although it's more elegant surroundings because you're in this kind of beautiful home. It, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful place to, to be for the last phases of one's life. And I would imagine both these, um, both these destinations, if that's what they are, uh, would benefit from any and all donations. Those are lovely choices because it's, you know, again, it's something that it's not unnecessarily obvious thing to think about when there's so much going on at the minute, but... Yeah. Um, say it's, it's the particular tragedy of this whole thing that people are spending their last moments alone. Thank you very much. Um, thank you, Jake. This is great. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for joining it's us. It's really fun. I enjoyed it. by Jake Leonard, with music by Dave Morris, publicity design by Ben Hollands, and voiceover by Rebecca Klee. We'd love to hear your favourite audience experiences and how COVID-19 has affected you, so feel free to get in touch with us on Twitter at MissingAnord. If you want to donate or find out more about the charities our guest was talking about, you can find the links in the description below. In the meantime, keep safe, keep well, and be kind. Next time, we're joined by the Artistic Director of Canoe Theatre, Julia Thomas. Ultimately, without the audience, it's not an art form. The audience are 50% of that art because without that live interaction, we don't have theatre, we have another art form. And I think that's what makes it unique. So that, that is a big question is why, why aren't our audiences absolutely up in arms about the fact that they're not going to be able to go to the theatre? I just find that really odd that it, it's just the people who are making theatre who are the ones who are going 
please help us. We need support here. You know, our buildings are closing down here, there and everywhere. In theory, you know, we should have thousands upon thousands of people in communities across the UK up in arms about losing an entire sector. I don't understand why we're not, but that's maybe I do. Maybe I just don't want to ask that question and be told the answer. Oh, oh, oh.